in the real world, chasing your dreams takes hard work and commitment. Are you just watching episode 144, Gran Turismo? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And today we are talking about another movie based on a true story. We're, we're kind of racking those up this we're week. Run and run! Week. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've done more than two, actually. Try but, to think. Yeah, but not in a row, right? Because the one before that was... Indiana Jones, which was yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. not based oh, on a definitely tr- a true story. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> good old um, Dr. Jones. I, I yes, read his good- last paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Gran Turismo, which I thought was an absolutely amazing movie. I, I enjoyed it. I, you know, it doesn't go down as like the best movie ever, but it was definitely an enjoyable watch. And I don't oh, think yeah. the critics are being nice to it. I don't know what reason they would have for not giving it its due, but I think it was of all the movies that are currently out, I think it is definitely one that should be gaining more acclaim than it's getting, I guess. Sure. It's a true story that reads like a fairy tale. Mm hmm. You know, it's almost like a male Cinderella. It's like everything that that he dreams about being, and and it just comes true. And yeah. this guy that's working with uh, Team is it Nissan or Nissan? <laughs> Nissan. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to correct the movie on how to say Nissan. <laughs> I figured they probably know better than me. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Or it could just be Orlando Bloom's funny British accent. I don't know. But anyway, Orlando Bloom's character is like the fairy godmother and <laughs> you know and, and the dad is like the stepmom who <laughs> holds him back and That is an interesting I'm taking this a little too far. Yeah, a little bit. What would uh, what would Jack be? Let's see. Uh, Geppetto? <laughs> That's the wrong story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, my whole point was that this reads like a fairy tale, but it's a true life story, and that makes it all the more fun. Yeah. But before we get too far into our initial reactions to this, I do want to mention the music, which I think the vast majority of it is by Lauren Balf, but mm-hmm. Andrew Kwasinski is also credited, so I don't know exactly who did what, but anyway. There's some pop music in there, too, yeah. Yeah. I'm beginning to really like Lauren Balf as a composer. His stuff, it's got a nice energy to it, and I mm-hmm. think he was a really good pick for this movie because the music, I'm going to purposely do a pun here, the music is very driven. Oh. So it, but it is. When you listen to it, it's got like this very driving rhythm to it that just... It is appropriately energetic. I will definitely yes. grant you that. As we were discussing, you know, this wonderful music, let me play a little bit of it here for your listening pleasure.
Balf did WandaVision too, which, if I recall yeah. correctly, was really, especially given the different eras that they did in WandaVision, he really mm-hmm. hit the mark every time. So yeah, he did. Yeah. A, he did a great job with this one too. I was I was listening to it earlier today while I was working on the outline. Yeah, I listened to it for a good bit. Was it yesterday or Friday? I was trying to remember now. We're recording this on a Sunday afternoon, which is not our normal, but we're. <laughs> we kind of had a month. rough month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it has. And I do apologize to our listeners because you probably won't get this delivered in September. It'll probably be early October when you're listening to this, but it's just been a crazy month and. I have a lot to do. Uh, we're recording this right before the last week of September, and I am going on a whirlwind trip the first three days of October, and I have got a lot to do before I can leave. So I don't know if I will have time to get all the post-production done, but we will get this episode to you. I am determined. I had my friend's funeral two weeks ago and came back with a very severe case of COVID. Yay. <laughs> But the antiviral regimen seems to have done its job. The symptoms were really bad the day before I left Maine. And then I had to travel Mm. sick, both plane and train and automobile, Mm. technically. So, you know, I had to be masked up the entire time. So, yeah, it Uh. was a really bad month. Yeah. Well, hopefully... October will be better. I don't yeah. know. Maybe if we can get this one out early October, we can plan the next one for early November and just stay on an early schedule, at least do the end of the year, mm. and that will help us get around Christmas and all of that. Well, since we're talking about not the movie yes. that we're actually reviewing right now. <laughs> what, what, what was the movie we're doing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That racing <laughs> driven Teresa. one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I thought this movie was great. And it's really interesting that, you know, I went on Rotten Tomatoes and the critics were all giving it like splats and all kinds of stuff. And and yeah, it's got a super high fan rating. It's like all the people who I guess were interested in the movie and went to see it all, you know, said it was a great movie and they loved it. So I don't know what the critics were watching, but that's typically the case. The critics are just critical for no reason whatsoever. That's what they do. They don't earn their money without being critical. It actually has a positive score now, 64. Oh, that's that's better than the last time I looked. 98% audience rating, though, which is skyrocket. Yeah, there is a big difference between the critical appeal and the fan reactions. So, as we've already mentioned, this is a true story. It is based on the real-life person of Jan Martinbro. I hope I'm saying his name right. It's not the way it's spelled. I don't <laughs> think he's going to correct you. I am not a big gamer as people consider gaming. I do play games on my tablet, you know, they're yeah. puzzle games and <laughs> and the kind of stuff that you don't get on like group communication and and fight or drive or do whatever, you know, these kinds of games have never been in my home. I've never had a chance to play them. So I don't know what GT is like. I think it looks like it would be kind of fun Mm -hmm. because I am a racing fan. I've been watching, I don't watch, what is it, sports car racing? Is that what that classifies as? Yeah. In the movie, in Gran Turismo, they actually had different race categories, right? Okay. Yeah. It showed him qualifying on Three different, what would you call them, platforms? Three different frames? I don't know, know, but I think it was all... Because Le Mans is different than the first one that he did. 
Yeah. I'm not familiar with any of that kind of racing because I'm a NASCAR fan and that's mm. all stock car yeah, racing. Yeah, you've been so doing that's NASCAR for with. a long time, right? I've been a huge NASCAR fan since Denny Hamlin's rookie year. I don't know when that was. It's like early 2000s, I think. But I haven't been watching it recently simply because like during COVID, things kind of took a turn for the worse with NASCARs and association. Did somebody turn right instead of left? Uh, NASCAR jokes for the win. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's all I got. That's the only NASCAR (laughs) joke I've got. So, Okay. All right. Well, we'll return to NASCAR later because I want to bring NASCAR up in in one of our themes. But I do want to say this movie also contains one of my favorite actors, who's Orlando Bloom. I have liked him in just about everything I've seen him in. He's not a prolific actor. I think he's a really choosy about yeah. his roles. Yeah, he is. I, I do appreciate when I do see him in something. Of course, my first introduction, and I, as is with most people, was Legolas in Lord of the Rings. But he has branched off and done a lot of cool things after that. But he was also in that Amazon original series. Oh, yeah. that, oh, the second season is on there now, and I haven't watched it yet, so... Yeah, I, I need to rewatch the first season before I can. It's set in a, a steampunkish fantasy world. So his first movie was Wild, which I've never heard of. His Neither second movie was Black Hawk Down, which he played somebody who broke his back and was only in the movie, like half the movie. And then Lord of the Rings, the first two, and then he was in Pirates of the Caribbean, okay. which Return of the King, the Lord of the Rings, was it was actually filmed at the same time as the others, but it released a year later so. Mm-hmm. And then he was in Elizabethtown, which I think is a really great movie. If you haven't seen Elizabethtown, it's a very slow movie. But there's some really good stuff in there. Maybe someday we can do like a legacy review of that movie, because I think it would be fun. But I really do love Orlando Bloom, and I, and I have not seen in him in anything that I thought was bad. So, you know, that kind of set me up to like this movie. Though he has aged quite a bit since Lord of the Rings. Oh, but he's aged gracefully. Man, If if I could have aged like he aged... I'll tell you what. Okay, so other than that, the only other general reaction I have about the movie is that I really appreciated the way they tied in gamification with real life (laughs) in the movie. Yeah, for the most part, that was good, yeah. Yeah, I know there was one thing about that you didn't like, but I just love the overlays. It was like, Mm -hmm. and, and then like, when you first see him... Driving with his new steering wheel rig on his mm-hmm. computer, it like turns into a car because it's like it's trying to give you that visual of this is such a great experience that it's yeah. like you're actually driving a car. They actually used it to help you develop a sympathetic relationship with the character of Jan. And I think they, right. they used it to really good effect right. in every point except one. And I'll mention that in a second. <laughs> You'll bring that up in a minute. Yeah. And the other way that they did it was when he was, I think it was in that final race that they showed on the movie, there was a scene where he realized that when he was playing the game or the sim on his computer, he had figured out like the ideal line mm-hmm. to to drive. And so when he started following that line, they changed him from the car back to his computer. And so they was kind of like overlaid him back to his computer. And I thought that was yeah. kind of just going back and forth between the two, I thought was very well done. When they did that, they they sort of bookended, you know, the movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought it, it was really well done. Yeah. Ex- excellent use of CGI in there. Definitely. The only thing that really bugged me about the racing and the whole time 
whenever they were actually in the cars, it really bugged me as they never put their face shields down. And it's like, hmm. there's absolutely no way that they would be racing those cars at those speeds without yeah. their face shields down. That's interesting. I did. I never noticed that. Because otherwise, it's just a faceless person. Yeah. You know, it's a face shield yeah. down. You can't see your eyes or anything. And so I know they did that because they wanted video of the drivers in the cars. But it's like not a single driver in that. They had the helmet on, but the shield over their eyes was up in every single scene. And I'm like, there's no way <laughs> you would be driving those cars. Would it have been better for you if they just didn't show the face face shield at all? If they had removed it from the helmet, just so you could assume it was down? I don't know what would have been better for me. It just it stood out to me that yeah. that it was what it was up. That's interesting. That it sort was pushed of, back. It's sort of like when when I'm watching, you know, like NCIS and they show a hacking scene and I'm looking at it going, there is no way. <laughs> it really just takes you out of the thing. Different thing yeah, for you. It, it threw me out completely. It's like, I, I guess it's because I know so much about NASCAR racing uh-huh. and stock cars don't go nearly as fast as the cars were. And I mean, the closest that stock cars get to going, the speeds that they were showing in this oh, yeah. movie are when they're doing super speedways. And then they actually restrict the engine so they can't top, I think it's 200 miles an hour or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I think there was one time where it looked like they were going like so fast that I can't even imagine. <laughs> Like, that's so much faster than NASCAR. <laughs> and they're going around like turns on roads and over bumps and, and running in rain and it's all these things that NASCAR doesn't do. So it was a different style of racing, definitely for me. But the whole thing about wearing a helmet is to protect you. And if you don't have it on properly, it's not <laughs> doing what it's supposed to do. So that's not going to do it. I've good. seen a lot of in-car video of actual races for NASCAR, and I know that they always have their helmets on and all of that. So the fastest speed ever recorded at Le Mans was 405 kilometers per hour, 253. But Le Mans okay. was like we like we said earlier, Le Mans was only one of the styles of, of racing yeah. that they showed, and and I don't know the different ones. Yeah, I know Indy cars go a lot faster because they're they're designed to hug the road and not not go airborne. The problem with stock cars is once you reach a certain speed, they go airborne. There's not enough downdraft to keep the cars on the roads. So they have to keep them under a certain. Never occurred to me the the speed difference between the different racing. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. So I came at this from a different angle altogether because I actually knew you know the general details. I remember when this contest started. I was already a professional in the IT world, and and I thought it was a really interesting idea. And you know. The true story that this is based on is actually over many years and many GT academies over, you know, time. And there were actually a whole bunch of different racers who won GT Academy on different continents. Jan Martinborough, though, was one of the real racers and the, and the dates that they used in the movie generally coincide to, you know, what his real life experience was i think he was in the second one wasn't he like the second year of it no no no. he was actually in the fourth the fourth year okay yeah 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 because i i'd read some articles about him after seeing the movie but he i want to say he would he was the fourth winner of the gt academy and i do know that there were some incidents in the races that actually occurred later on in his career and they sandwiched them into just that initial team nissan year that he yeah. was with them the, f- the first year or so. And, and like we talked about in Devotion, you know, 
it's a wonderful true story. It, it's almost fairy tale-ish, but the writers still have to maintain pacing and tell an engaging story if they just... And have character arcs and yeah, all of and that. everything. So I think they did a really good job of taking yeah. all the disjointed elements and put putting them in together into an enjoyable and really uplifting story that plays really well on the big screen. Mm-hmm. And I'm a fan of Orlando Bloom, too. David Harbour. I like him in almost everything I've seen. The only thing I... Mm-hmm can think of that I didn't really like him was the remake of Hellboy, but that's just because, you know, my wife and I love the first one, the first actor, Ron Perlman, better. <laughs> I had never heard of Archie Medecki, uh the guy who played Jan. Mm-hmm. But while David Harbour and Orlando Bloom, they both, they both did great, but I, by, I expect, you know, good performances from them because that's what I've come to expect from them. I'd never seen him before. So I was really impressed with how well he did. And, and I got the impression that he was a much younger person than I suspect well, he is. He's so. playing a young person. So that makes sense. He yeah. doesn't have this long, you know, this long career ahead of him. Cause he's actually a young guy who's just getting started and yeah. he did a good job. Yeah. I don't think he looks very much like the real yawn, but I think that, they portrayed him well, so oh, yeah, I, but, I don't have a problem with it. You know, even though he doesn't look a lot like him, mm-hmm. he nailed the characterizations, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Just looking at, at the documentaries that you know that they showed as part of the YouTube's comparisons that I was watching. And we should mention, of course, that Jan Martinborough actually oh yeah drove in the movie. He he was a stunt driver. Yeah, so he was on set to help correct anything that was wrong. <laughs> My favorite character was actually Jack, who is not a real person. He's another one of those composite characters that the writers use to, you know, consolidate storylines and and everything like that. But it seemed handwritten for David Harbour. He just did such a good job delivering the lines and everything. He gives a back-in-the-saddle speech a little bit later we'll talk about in one of the themes Mm -hmm. that, you know, I thought was just perfectly done. The one thing, maybe not the one thing, but the thing that really <laughs> I didn't like the most, the the thing that really took me out of it all and, and made me go, well, that's stupid, was early on in the movie. There's a scene where Jan and, and his brother have gone to a drinking party and the cops come and bust the party up so they run away in their dad's car and it shows him outrunning the police <laughs> and mm-hmm. then when it's done there's this achievement that pops up in the middle of the screen called cop avoidance <laughs> which it bugs me on so many levels yeah. The first thing is, it's straight out of games like Grand Theft Auto and Payday, where you play the bad guy. And mm-hmm. I have a moral issue with these games anyway. You should not enjoy doing evil things just because it's in a virtual environment. Right. Virtual environments are not licensed to feed Break the, the <laughs> evil person inside of you. Yeah, That is not what we're about. That is not glorifying to God in any stretch. 
when you're doing writing, it's hard enough to write evil characters, but you know, to use them for entertainment, to be them for entertainment is another thing entirely. And the the second part was Gran Turismo, the game that this is based off of, is a super realistic simulation. Right. It's every version of it, and there have been, I want to say, six versions, maybe? Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. Every version has taken the best available software and programming to make it as super realistic as possible. And the movie makes a point of that. In, in particular, Jan says, I know these cars. I I know exactly. He actually troubleshooted something wrong with the car because the... Yeah, the- something about the brakes. The brakes yeah. froze or seized or something. And yeah. the point was that he knew this because of how realistic the original designer of Gran Turismo had made the game. And this achievement pop-up of outrunning the cops is not part of Gran Turismo anywhere. Turismo is yeah. is solely racing, you know, design and tweaking, and it's much truer to racing than to anything else because that's the focus. And throwing that cop avoidance thing was like a wink and a nod to the wrong crowd in my mind. And that really took me yeah, out of the movie. It didn't make Jan look very good either. I don't know whether no, he actually ever did try to outrun didn't. the police, but that's not something that's admirable, you know, to... Yeah, yeah that part was poorly done. I definitely agree. But that's a, a pretty minor complaint, you know, <laughs> for the whole movie. It set the story, though. But it did. It did. Yeah. It did play to the story of, you know, the relationship between him and his father mm-hmm. and other things. So, it, I mean, it played a part in the overall narrative, but I agree with you that it probably was not the the best thing. And, and <laughs> for you the know, movie. like you said, Jan was a stunt driver for the film. I can't imagine he wasn't also a consultant, right? So, right. he must agreed have to it. agreed to it, you know, given it, yeah, given it yeah. his blessing. So for me, it was just, I think it was inappropriate, but hey, he's he, so I won't tell him how to be he. <laughs> All right. So before we move on to our thematic discussion, I do want to remind you that Are You Just Watching is a listener supported podcast. We want to thank our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman, who all give $5 or more a month, and they have been doing so for quite a while. So we appreciate all of those gentlemen and their financial support of this podcast. You can also support us by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash watching. You could also support us by sharing this podcast whenever you listen to it. Share it on your social medias or by word of mouth. Let people know we exist. Whenever you start discussing a movie with some friends or families, you could say, hey, by the way, there's this really great podcast I listen to that talks about movies from a Christian worldview. You might be interested and give them our website. We really appreciate that because the listenership is important to us. We want to know that you're out there listening. So that is, if you can't afford to support us financially, then that is the next best way of supporting us is by sharing our podcast with others. So we thank you so much for listening and for doing that. All right. So I would say probably the biggest theme in this movie is the whole uh, relationship between Jan and his father and uh, what it was like to raise a child who has unrealistic dreams for his life. Mm. And 
I think this really plays to our culture right now. Maybe not in a good way, because we have a lot of things going on in our culture where we're letting kids make decisions about their lives that they're really too young and lack maturity to be able to truly understand the decisions they're making. And so it is the job of the parent to parent their child and know when their expectations or their dreams or their goals in life are unrealistic and help shepherd them in a path that is better for their well-being and their future. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a very important thing for parents to do for their children. In this movie, you can see that it is a bit of a struggle for poor Jan's father, because he knows that Jan's expectations for his life are completely unrealistic, but he can't get that through to his kid. And then the fairy tale happens and it comes true, you know? You sort of, sort of wish it didn't. So the father would have been sort of justified. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're not going to win the lotto. You're not going to win the lotto yet. You won the lotto. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think it also says a little bit about not only Jan's dream, but his, his dedication to that dream. Nothing comes easy. So. Once we get past this theme, we're going to talk about, you know, how work and a dedication makes those dreams come true. But there is an importance, though, in realizing that, you know, every child can't be a policeman or a mm. firefighter or astronaut, or doctor, a doctor, president. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder in this movie if they may have played that whole aspect up more than it was in real life. Hmm. There's a scene where they're around the dinner table, and and Jan's mom says, uh, "Have you thought about going back to the university?" He says, "Mom, we've been over this so many times." She says, "Well, motorsports engineering is a step in that direction." And he says, "And I told you at university they don't let us drive cars." And I'm listening to that, going, "Yeah, so yeah, gonna walk before you can run, right?" Yeah, and the weird thing about that though is, is that. There there was a line in the movie, and I don't remember exactly when it was. I think it was fairly early on, where he said that his dream of racing, I guess it started when his dad had taken him to a race when he was yeah. little. And he had a fairly realistic view of what it would take to get involved with racing, because he was like, I'll have to go and, and work at the tracks and, you know, mm-hmm. be, you know, part of the pit crew and work my way up. And so he wasn't thinking that he was just going to suddenly be a race car driver, he understood that there was a path to that that he would have to take. He just didn't believe that it was college. And while his parents were thinking if he didn't go to college, he was never going to get, you know, the good paying job that which is a you know, common college graduates perception get. among parents. It, it is. And I do want to speak to that briefly, because I used to be in that position where I always thought, you know, you go to college. And I think it's becoming less the case because in our culture now, we have so many college graduates who can't find jobs because mm-hmm. there just aren't enough of those kind of jobs out there. Meanwhile, we have a severe lack of the trades yeah. because everybody has a very low opinion of what working in a trade is. And vocational yet they're training, very yeah. high paying jobs. Yeah, vocational, there, there are some really good high paying jobs in the trades. And so I think that the stigma we have against blue collar 
quote unquote labor is hurting our culture, our society in the West, across the West. It's not just the US, it's it's England, it's all of the the highly industrialized countries are shifting mm-hmm. into services. And we don't have enough people willing to do those jobs. And it's going to hurt us in the long run, because we have this mentality that if you don't go to college, you're not going to succeed in life. And I think that that is less the case with each passing year. In fact, I think a lot of colleges, you start out life in debt, and it stacks you up for the opposite of success, because you start off in debt because you had to borrow money to pay for college, and then you can't find a job afterwards. And Yeah. I think we'll see a correction. We're seeing the pendulum swing the other way, just like we do on so many things. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in the middle is going to be right. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, the pendulum's going to hit the middle and then continue swinging. And then yeah, it's just the nature of overcorrection. I think the pendulum would be safer swinging in the other direction because right now colleges are destroying our young people. They they spend way too much time on oh, social indoctrination and that's a different yeah, thing altogether, a, though. Yeah, but it, it is unfortunately the case that yep. you send your kids to college now and and you basically are signing them over to be nice little social communists because that's what they're being taught to be, and and it's sad. Ah, comrade. All right. It's interesting, you know, dealing with parenting. And of course, we can always fall back on the verses that we always do for parenting, you know, train them up in the way. Yeah, I look at this entire theme from like the eyes of my granddaughter. My six-year-old granddaughter saw a display in the store that was a candy line called Secret Santa. So she decided that Secret Santa is a real job. (laughs) So she determines at six years old that she is going to be a Secret Santa when she grows up. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's a perfect illustration of what we're seeing here in the movie is... Except he's not six. Well, that's the thing. You know, as we get older, as we mature, our sense of reality starts to develop and you know maybe at five i wanted to be a cowboy well okay in inner city michigan that's not likely to happen so by the time i was in high school it was like i sort of want to be a pastor you know and i ended up going into the military where I could use my God-given skills of analysis and and computers and have been content for the most part ever since. But the thing is, in the movie, Jan's dad, Steve, is convinced that this is an unrealistic dream, but Jan is convinced, even as he's growing more mature and older that this is a realistic dream to start the movie he's like 19 so he's finished with his normal schooling and it's right that's why the pressure is so hard for him to go to college or something because exactly so really the question comes down to is this doable and part of what jan's dad's perception is is based on is he was a professional football player european soccer. Yeah, yeah european football soccer as we americans yanks call them and he had this wonderful career 
suffered an injury, I think, but his career finished and he didn't have a backup plan. And that's what was feeding his fear for Jan. And it's perfectly Mm -hmm. understandable to me. It's a legitimate concern. It really is. And it really, any time that you have a child whose focus is a sports career, that is a legitimate concern because in any kind of sport, Mm -hmm. you usually get weeded out by the time you finish college. So, you know, if you're not good enough to go pro, you get weeded out and and you have time in your life to change your direction. But it it's true. I mean, I have a friend of mine whose son was really good pitcher in baseball, and they thought he was going to go pro. And then he ended up getting injured right towards the end of his high school career. And he did pitch and catch in college, but he ended up pursuing hotel sciences and just pretty much spurned to the sports career and went into hotel management instead. And I think, honestly, I think that was probably a good decision for him because all it takes is one injury and your sports career scrapped. And if you're not far enough and along to have made money and built up income and whatever, then, you know, to me, it's a legitimate concern. You know, it's like, don't get involved in the sport. And I think a lot of young people, especially who get involved in sports, they typically don't plan ahead. So it's like Mm -hmm. they could even do super really well. And then not save up that money, not put it aside right. for a rainy day or whatever. Which is Spend exactly, it all on yeah, it's exactly what the father was yeah. trying to help with. You know, in media today, we get the stories of these wonderful athletes who are like first or second draft pick, or, you know, even every once in a while, they'll do this puff piece of the guy who became a professional football player, but continued went back to college to get his master's in biology or, you know, something like that. But those are the exception, not the rule. Yeah. And for every Deion Sanders, <laughs> there are, you know, probably a hundred unnamed guys who end up working used car sales or something like that, or in a yeah. rail yard like Jan's dad was. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. One of the points that you put under this theme was, was Jan dishonoring his father? Yeah. And I think that's a good question because we are ordered through scripture to honor our our parents. But I also, I want to put a caveat on that. You know, the, the caveat in the New Testament is that we're not supposed to provoke our children. And I think that there may have been a little dishonoring on Jan's part, but I think there may have been a little provoking on Jan's father's part as well. Uh, I I disagree. The, The reason I say that is that when your children become adults, you have to start tempering. And honestly, I'm not speaking from experience because I have no children of my own, but you have to start tempering some of the expectations you have of what they're doing with their lives Mm -hmm. against Sometimes, you know, the kid has to stumble into the stove and burn his hand to realize the stove is hot. And you can tell the child over and over and over again that the stove is hot. And if you touch it, you're going to burn your hand. But it's the experience of touching the stove that teaches them that lesson. And I think in this situation, I think Jan's father had told him over and over again the dead end that his career goals would take him. At some point, he just has to step back and let Jan make whatever mistakes he's going to make. And I think in the in a way that happens in this movie, because, you know, Jan's father does make up with him at the end of the movie, and that there is this, I support you, I am proud of you. Right. And 
that made me happy because I think that's what Jan needed was a supportive father. He didn't need a father that was continually pouring acid on his dreams. Right. And that's kind of what it felt like at the beginning of the movie. And like I said, I understand the reason why Jan's father had that perspective, but. (laughs) Yeah. First off, I do want to point out that the whole relationship between Jan and his father in the movie is almost entirely fabricated. Right. In reality, there was never a time when Jan, you know, stopped talking to his parents. They always supported what he was doing. And, you know, it was just to build emotional tension and to demonstrate. Have a story arc. Yeah. Put a face to the idea that this is so outrageous that a gamer could become, you know, a race car driver. Mm -hmm. Because that really is the whole underlying villain in the movie is the idea that it could happen yeah exactly you know in the movie they play up the other racers and how they react Mm -hmm. and all that so right i understand why they did it let's say for the moment that this all had really happened like it shows in the movie i think jan's father could have approached it differently my thought was all right let's sit down and map out how you're going to get from gaming to racing and Mm -hmm. come up with a plan. Yeah. No plan survives first contact with the enemy, so sit down again (laughs) and (laughs) revise the plan and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through. But I don't think that Jan's father was provoking him. I think that Jan's father was absolutely convinced that there was no way for him to get from point A to point B on the current path. And I thought Jaman Hansu, Jan's father, Steve Martinborough, does a great job. He's been in a number of things. But I thought the way that they played the character of Steve was, I thought it was appropriate and well done. But, you know, I'm probably just biased because I'm a father too. And I look at this going, well, yeah. I think that's an important perspective that you bring to this, because like I said, my caveat is I have not raised children. So I honestly don't understand. I've seen a lot of my friends, you know, deal with Mm -hmm. children who have not made wise career choices or not finished college or whatever. And I kind of understand, you know, the the concerns that parents have with that. And I get it. I totally Mm -hmm. do. But I think at some point you just have to step out of their way and let them make their own mistakes. You, if they haven't heard you the last 600 times you said it, saying it 601 yeah. times isn't going to work. That's true. I, I wanted to talk about this from a Christian, for, well, I mean, from a specific Christian perspective. I was going to say, that's kind of the point, isn't it? <laughs> As those of you who have been listening for a while probably know, I work for a Christian nonprofit organization that has a very wide range of theological backgrounds, and some of them include prosperity gospel preaching, which is something that I have some serious theological concerns with. You and I both. In particular, because it takes Scripture— And it twists it Mm -hmm. so that it's used as a justification for pursuing material wealth. 
And I won't say that there's absolutely nothing to what they're saying, because there is. At least 75% of it is legitimate difference of opinion, and I'm okay with that. And I hope to argue this in heaven with those that truly believe in Christ as their Savior and just have fallen into the what I consider to be the wrong interpretation. But one of the things they argue, and it pops up all the time, is Matthew 19.26, when it says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And, you know, I look at stuff like becoming a missionary. Missionaries are responsible for raising all the funds for their mission. I have some friends at church who were missionaries in Russia before Russia kicked out the Christian missionaries. And they were preparing to go actually to Ukraine to work with the RUF. And they were raising all the money. And and I look at that kind of goal and I think, that wow, that would be impossible for me. I don't think I could handle it. But Jim and Natasha, they didn't see it as an impossible goal. And, you know, there is a level of belief, a level of faith that God grants each of us when it comes to these impossible goals. And and we have to remember that. Jim and Natasha, they go in saying, okay, we need to raise $100,000. And they start it, and they sit down, and they plan it out, and they talk about who they're going to go and talk to for fundraising. And, you know, they reach out to their, their contacts and and do all this uh, networking, and they make it happen, which to me is astounding. It's, it's like miracle-level stuff. May I correct your phraseology? They didn't make it happen. God made it Very happen. Very good point. Excellent point. Because the whole point of with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible is that we don't make things happen. If they are in God's will, God makes them happen. And that's that's where I think the prosperity gospel really gets it wrong. And in the movie, it's sort of the same way. Jan sees it as a viable goal. And if he were, you know, a practicing Christian – he could address it that way and trust that God is going to make it happen because he's convinced that it is God's will. Right. And that's why I think this is sort of a difficult thing for Christians, especially for me. I tend towards more of the skeptic side. I'm a cessationist when it comes to, you know, the Acts of the Apostles and parting of the Red Sea level miracles type thing. But There are folks out there who are every bit as faithful Christians as I am, and far more so, who see it differently. And they walk in faith that they will be healed, or that, you know, their financial worry will work out, but they don't approach it from this idea that God's just going to drop the money in their laps. So that's why I wanted to sort of stress in this theme is that if God wants it to happen, he's going to make it happen. But that doesn't mean you get off scot-free with no work. So before we move on to our next theme, where we're going to talk about the work ethic and, and what you get through hard work and 
not grace. You don't get that through hard work, but we'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Oh, good boy. (laughs) So I want to remind you that you can share your feedback to our podcast. We really, really love hearing from our listeners. And you can do that by commenting on the show notes for this podcast, which will, for this episode, will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 144. You can call us at 513-818-2959, leave a voicemail or text that number. That is a Google Voice number, so you can leave a voicemail or text. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com, or you can join either our Facebook discussion group or our Discord server, which we actually kind of both (laughs) are less and less on Facebook these days. So we would highly encourage you if you want to be in direct contact with us that the best place to do that would be on our Discord server, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord. That will give you an invite to our server. You can also go to areyoujustwatching.com slash community, which gives you access to our Facebook discussion group. And we look forward to hearing from you. All right. So as you have mentioned at the end of that last theme, you kind of put together the idea that, that God does choose to bless some of us, but that there is also work involved on our part. I do want to stipulate going into this next thing that when we talk about a work ethic and that we're talking about hard work and commitment, we are not talking about salvation. That salvation is a free gift. We don't have to work to get it. This is not what we're talking about in this discussion at all, because God gave it to us. It is a free gift, lest any of us boast about it, because if we got it through hard work, then we could say that that we somehow made the salvation happen, and that is not what we're talking about. And you don't get it by giving money to an evangelist either, just to be clear. No, definitely not. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to get salvation by, you know, sending in that love gift or love offering that, you know, to some faith mm-hmm. healer or whatever. That's not how you get it. So, that this is a free gift that is granted through God's grace on you, and you don't have to work to get it. However, there are things in life that require work and commitment least of which is whatever career you choose to do. There's marriage takes hard work and commitment. A job takes hard work and commitment. Friendships take hard work Mm -hmm. and commitment. Even the Christian life, to some degree, your, your fellowship among believers and your function in the church, there's everything in life requires hard work and commitment, just not salvation. That's a free gift. So, all right, caveat made. One of the things that when I thought about this movie was I went to a boarding high school and the motto for that school, the three pillars upon which it rests is work, study, worship. And I always thought in my weird little way of looking at it, that they were in the wrong order, that worship should be first. (laughs) And I still to this day think that because while a work ethic is very good and a study ethic is what gets you graduated from high school, worship is what we are According to the, you know, the Christian creeds, that's what we are here to do is to worship and praise God. So Ah, I always, always I look at that the other way around. If you look at creation, what was worship like in Eden? Well, it was the direct communion with God because he walked in the garden. So Adam was given work before the fall. Mm -hmm. So work is actually shows up first. Once the kingdom comes, God's will be done on earth Mm -hmm. as it is in heaven. (laughs) 
worship will be natural. It will be an integral part of who we are and what we do, just like back in Eden. But we'll still be working. Well, I guess it depends on how you define work. Mm. So maybe that's where we start is how do you define work? Because there's a famous saying by Confucius that says, choose a job you love and you will never have to work a day in your life. And it was really interesting when I was, I had always heard it, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life or yeah. something like that. And when I looked it up to see who it was attributed to, I was surprised to find that it was Confucius. I had no idea. The, the interesting thing about that is that the article that I found that popped up, the first thing when I searched it was somebody who was actually had a bone to pick with that saying, saying that, you know, n- even if you love, it takes a lot of work and commitment. So it's still work. Even if you love doing it, it's still mm-hmm. work. And I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it is that for me, my job, I really enjoy doing what I do. But I have to agree, there are some days when you're just slogging through it, even though you enjoy your work, it is still a slog to go to work and do it. And so maybe the definition of work is important, because sometimes you're working for a paycheck. Sometimes you're doing something you love that counts as labor. I mean, you are laboring to do it, but it's not work because it's something that you enjoy doing, like a craft that you like to do. It's like avocation versus vocation. Right, right. If it's something that you enjoy doing, it can be labor intensive and not be work. Gardening. It could be a hobby. My mother was a voracious gardener when I was growing up, but it wasn't work. There I go using that word. It wasn't work to her. (laughs) Yeah. But it was work. I mean, right. it, it definitely was yeah. work. It was labor. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we should use labor. Yeah. So it was labor, but it wasn't work. So yeah, I think it all depends on how you define the word because mm-hmm. was Adam laboring in the garden? It was, it doesn't say that work became difficult until the curse. Exactly. So whatever he was doing in the garden was not necessarily a painful labor, mm-hmm. you know, like it wasn't like something that he didn't want to do, but he had to do kind of thing. And I think a lot of people associate work with that mentality. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I got to get up and go to work uh-huh. today. It's a, it's almost a dirty word. It's a four letter word. Yeah, it's one of the four letter words, but so is love. So I don't <laughs> know about that. But you get my point, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, it all, it all depends on how you define the word work, because if it's something that you enjoy doing, it can be labor intensive and not be work. Mm -hmm. So I would say that when it's work, study, worship, you know, going back to my high school motto that, you know, worship can be work, work can be Mm -hmm. worship. I think that as Christians, we should be able to do everything worshipfully. So therefore, worship would always be first. But even hard labor you know, mm-hmm. if you're stuck in a labor camp because, you know, you're a prisoner or whatever, and whether it be a legitimate prisoning or whatever, you know, you can still do that. Yeah. Like, my thoughts flash to Paul and Silas, who were often jailed, and they always took the opportunity in even the worst situations to praise and worship God in those situations. And so, yeah. even the most labor-intensive work that you do can be a form of worship. So, the point of that I was getting to on this was there was a scene, and I think we've already referred to it, where Jan's father takes him to work mm-hmm. with him at the – what did you say? It was a yeah, rail they, yard? They, they worked in the coal rail yard. So, it was basically manual labor of loading things onto the rails, right? So, it's like – Loading up the rail cars, yeah. Manual labor that is 
you know, just like, I won't say it's pointless because it, oh, it had yeah. a point. It was to get things on and off trains, but. It's, the country would come to a standstill if they didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need those people who do that. So I don't want to call their work pointless, but it is manual yeah. labor that is not skilled labor. So it's like it anybody with strength labor. can go and do it. <laughs> right. I don't want to step on any toes by saying it's pointless work. But in Jan's mind, it was pointless work because he had a goal. And in fact, that work that he was doing that his dad had brought him to work to do was keeping him from being in the competition Mm -hmm. to have a chance to win this chance to go to this school and learn how to be a race car driver. And so that was... You know, his goal, he actually had something to do. And so it was this point of conflict between the two of them, you know, and and then he finds out that his dad had him there because it was supposed to be that touch the stove lesson Mm -hmm. that, you know, this is where you will end up, you know, if you don't have all your ducks in a row and plan your future better. And he's like, Dad, I don't need this lesson right now. I'm, I'm trying to put that next duck in the row for my future. So, but yeah, one of the things that I thought was very good about this movie was that they showed the difference between sitting in front of a computer as realistic as The Sim right. was. And I won't call it a game. There is a massive difference between driving a car on a screen and being inside a car driving, you know, over 200 miles an hour. And that is work and conditioning, physical conditioning, and being able to withstand heat and G-force. And it's not easy to drive a car at all. And so I think they did a really good job of showing the fact that when they showed up for the for this camp, it was like, um, hey guys, you actually have to be inside a car yeah. now, and it's not comfortable it is, inside a car. It is, it is not a fun place to be. It's I, I remember them saying something like it's it's consistently 120 degrees or something like in there. Yeah, it's super hot. They don't they don't That's waste the temperature. It. I dehydrate fruit at. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of race cars, all race cars, as far as I know, they don't waste any power on AC or anything like that. And on top of that, they have to all wear fireproof suits. And so they're completely gigged up from the top of their head to the tips of their toes. There's not a piece of skin Mm -hmm. showing. And they're basically in ovens that are pulling (laughs) G-forces. I vaguely remember a Top Gear episode where they did 24-hour Le Mans and... At the end of the race, they showed how much weight they lost just through sweating. And it it was considerable. It was like 10 pounds. Yeah. And the thing is, is back when I was a lot bigger of a NASCAR fan than I am now, I remember the debate that was ongoing as to whether auto racing counts as a sport. And there were so many people that were saying, oh, now all they do is sit in a car Uh all day, you know, and and turn left. And it's like, you don't get it. I would like to see any other athlete climb into a car and try to drive it because it's not easy. It requires physical conditioning. You're pulling G-forces and you have to be able to concentrate and do quick reaction time and fine motor skills all while you're boiling yeah. <laughs> in, in something pulling G-forces. And you have to do that for hours on end. It's not like... Uh, there are some races that are short, but most uh, a lot of auto racing is mm-hmm. very long. You're usually in the car for hours. And so it this is not an easy thing to do, and it requires athletes to do it. They, they really have to be on their game all the time, because if they make one, like, 
when I'm driving to work, a lot of times I'm on autopilot. You know, I've driven this so many yeah. times that I know I turn left here. <laughs> I know I waited for this light to turn green, then I turn right. And you get there and suddenly you can't remember some of the trip. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, race car drivers can't do that. They can't zone yeah. out and just go on autopilot. They're driving every second. And so maybe when they're behind the pace car, maybe they can zone out for a little bit, but it's hard work. I bet even then they're talking to their pit crew and whoever's <laughs> advising them on the turns and how wet the pavement is. I bet even then they're, their brain is entirely yeah. engaged. Yeah. It's a full body oh, sport. Yeah. It's like mind, mind and body. And, you know, in the movie, they did a good job showing that the, the whole training montage yes, they and, did. and the character of Jack Slater really drove that home. And yeah. uh, they really showed how Jan was putting in the work ethic that matched his passion. Right. And so I think that that was one of the things that was fairly important about this movie was that even when it seems like this fairy tale where you're just given your dream. He he wasn't given the stream. He had oh, to yeah. work awful hard for it. And he had to compete against others who were working awful hard for it. And then he had to prove himself over and over and over again, because at least in, in the case of this movie, you know, he had to prove himself to be on, you know, Team Nissan and then prove himself to all of the other race drivers, yeah. you know, that were driving. They all didn't want him there. And so he had to prove that he was competent. So, yeah, I mean... This was not a dream that was easy. It wasn't as much as it appeared that it was just handed to him. You know, he had to mm -hmm. work really hard to get it. And so on the topic of work, there are absolutely a lot. Of oh, verses. yeah. Work is one of the most important themes in the entire Bible, right yeah. after the story of the gospel. And we've been a little scripture light up to this point. So I'm going to spend some time in the mm -hmm. Bible because this is an important part of our podcast. So the first passage that I brought up is uh, Colossians three seventeen, and then I'm going to skip to 22 through 24. In this instance, what I'm skipping is not as important to what we're talking about. But they are important verses, yeah. so you, you feel free to go back and, and read them at your leisure. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Skipping to verse 22. Slaves, obey your human masters and everything. And and I would just put, you know, employees mm -hmm. <laughs> or any person who is working for a yeah. living, which is, I would say, most of Even if of you're us. not enjoying what you're doing. Exactly. Obey your employers and everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. So in this verse, we're putting work, just the mundanity of doing a job in a position of service to God. So whatever you are doing, Whatever kind of job that you have committed yourself to do, you know, the employer who gives you a paycheck so that you can put food on your mm -hmm. table, you are supposed to do that job as if you are doing it for God, because you are doing it for God, ultimately. And the type of employee you are for your employer glorifies God, because you are representing God as a Christian. Yeah. And then Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your activities to the Lord and your plans will be established. And this is not... You know, this whole prosperity yep. thing, which you brought up earlier, 
it's so easy to fall into that. You know, you can pick verses out of the Bible to support the prosperity gospel, but they're all taken out of context when you do that. So I will agree with you. There may be some true believing Christians out there who have been caught in the trap of the prosperity gospel, but don't let yourself go down that, that path because make sure that you're always reading scripture in context and Proverbs, it's, a little easier to just pick a verse out because there really is no context to Proverbs. They're all pithy sayings. I mean, that is that is the literal definition of Proverbs. Yeah. In this instance, committing your activities to the Lord and your plans will be established doesn't mean that God's going to bless you with wealth and health and and all of that. It just means that God will establish your plans and however works for him. Yeah, it means that you are to work towards God's will because that is what will be established. (laughs) Right, exactly. This is one that we have used a lot, I think. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. So this is just more on the same theme of whatever you're doing, whether it's hard labor or a pleasant hobby or Recording a podcast, yep. <laughs> you're, you're supposed to do it for the glory of God. That's the ultimate reason why we do anything. I found Ephesians 4.28 to be interesting. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. And the context of that one, if you read it in the, the context of Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about the change that comes from serving God, Mm -hmm. you know, what we were before we are no longer now. And so the change for the thief is instead of stealing, he is to work so that he can help others instead of take from others. So it's like that flip flop of who you were before Christ. And now who you are in Christ, you now labor to the good of God and the good of others. It's one of those wonderful sections that's both literal and metaphorical. (laughs) Mm hmm. Because, I mean, it applies not only to the sinner who becomes a saint, but it also applies at every level in between. So I love those particular ones. Yeah. This next passage is a little long, but I couldn't stop. I was like, (laughs) I I can't just pick one verse out of here. This whole thing is great. So I'm going to read the whole thing. So this is 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support But we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. And the reason I picked this out is because it's it's a really good treatise, I think, on the act of charity, charitable giving mm-hmm. among the believers, and the need to not be takers. You know, it's like the, 
when you have charitable giving, there's always the group of people, well, if I just sit back and do nothing, somebody's going to provide my needs. I don't have to work anymore. In fact, I would say there's a good bit of the United States right now who's gotten used to that because they got paid to be idle during COVID. There's a fair amount of it. Yeah, Yeah, they don't want to go back to work because they like getting that government check that just pays them to do nothing. So this is an exhortation. It's like, yes, we should be actively meeting the needs of others, but those others should not be actively idle, just expecting other people to take care of them. They should be required to work. And so it's it, to me, it's it's just a very interesting perspective on the early church, because I think it was early on in Acts, it said that all of the believers held everything in common. You know, mm-hmm. they pooled their resources and held everything in common. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of people use that as a example of why socialism works. And I'm like, not necessarily. And I think carrying this forward, we get, you know, Second Thessalonians, which I'm sure came much later after Acts, you know, this, these early believers who are pooling their resources. Eventually, there were these busybodies in the fellowship who, you know, hey, we're pooling our resources. I don't, you know, I don't have to work. I, you know, someone else is going to feed me. <laughs> so, that's what always happens with socialism yeah. is, oh, I don't have to work. Somebody else will feed me. It was actually a, a symptom of the early church after they had gotten used to this way of, mm-hmm. of living together. And Paul had to say, hey, you guys all have to work. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't work, you don't eat. Ship up or ship out. <laughs> okay, so in completion of this theme and then in, in this general thought yeah. of chasing your dream and, and working, I do want to remind everybody that we have to be careful as Christians to not get caught in this follow your heart mentality. And I think sometimes when you're following dreams, when you have dreams, especially as young people, and you have your whole life ahead of you, Mm -hmm. and you're ready to just, you know, do that thing that you're passionate about, we have to remember to be sensitive to God's leading and that we're going where God wants us, that we seek God's calling for our life yeah. and not follow our hearts. Because as we've already said over and over again in previous reviews of movies that, you know, the heart's deceitful and wicked and, you know, it will lead you astray. And our society is very good about pushing that whole follow your dream, follow your heart. And in the end, we should be following God. <laughs> Right. And, you know, that's why we have brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we have a f- congregation, a fellowship, is so that we can sharpen each other. We can lift each right. other up and we can advise. And, you know, we have elders for a reason. <laughs> so, yeah. Let's not just follow our heart, but actually seek, seek godly, guidance. W- uh, godly wisdom. Yeah. yeah. Wisdom and guidance. Yeah. And, you know, in, in this situation, Obviously, it turned out well for Jan. He ended up running over 200 races. I think he's still actively racing, isn't he? Yes, he is. Uh, As far as I know. And that is an amazing testament to his focus on his dream and making that dream a reality. It was a lot of work, and it takes a lot of commitment, and he's still doing it. And perhaps his father in, in real life was a lot more supportive than the father is portrayed in the movie. If he had listened to his father and he may not have, you know, gone that direction. But all in all, we are supposed to listen to our elders and seek godly wisdom. And God doesn't want us to be unhappy in our occupation. I'm going to be very careful with how I phrase this because it's 
too easy to slant into this prosperity gospel thing again, where God wants you to be happy, wealthy, and and uh, healthy. That's not necessarily the case. We are supposed to, above all, put God first and work right. towards his kingdom and his glory. But I also think that, that God gives us the desires of our heart when our desires match up with his will. Right. And so I look through my own life as I, I had completely different expectations for all my life when I was going into college. Ended up doing something completely different than I thought I would when I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. But God directed all of those steps and I love my job and I love my employer. And so I'm very happy that God directed me in the path that I am on. And I think that that's the case for anybody. It's like you may not end up where you thought you'd be, but you're going to end up where God wants you to be. And yeah. There's contentment in that and joy in that. Yeah, and you could even be in an absolutely horrid situation. You could be a Christian in China. Mm -hmm. You could be a missionary in Gabon, where, you know, they have roving bands of Islamic terrorists. And you can still be content, even under the threat of constant persecution or even death. Yeah. But it's not easy. You really have to be fully invested in the spirit and where the spirit guides you. Yeah. I'm constantly amazed by like the articles in Voice of the Martyr. Mhm. So, being content does not mean just your accepting life is perfect. where you are or that your life is perfect or anything like that. Yeah. But it means being content that God has you there for a reason and right. embracing that reason and, you know, working to yeah. Glorify God. Our final theme is based on, uh, well, it's more than one scene, but an incident that happened that in the movie during his initial year with Team Nissan, but it was actually, I think, his third year racing that this yeah. happened. It is an actual event that happened in which Jan, it wasn't his fault. He was topping a hill and a certain wind gust caught underneath his car and, and actually flipped his car up. Mm-hmm. And it went airborne and into the spectators who were along the street course, and it killed somebody. And so, obviously, it was a traumatic accident for Jan, but he also carried with him the guilt that a spectator was killed and had to go back to racing with that. And one of the things that I wanted to return to my long history of watching NASCAR a lot of people who watch racing watch it for the wrecks because they're pretty spectacular. And most of the time when you're watching racing because of the safety technology that they have in the cars these days, they're usually pretty bloodless. You know? Right, right. The car can literally disintegrate around the driver and he'll walk away. Yeah, Formula One cars in particular are that way. Yeah, uh, they're actually designed to do that, to just completely disintegrate. And the NASCAR, they're stock cars, but they have so much padding and and stuff inside the car. Reinforcement. And, and the driver himself is literally on a backboard while he's driving. I mean, they everything from the top of his head to the, his lower back is actually strapped into, I think they call it the Hans device, in order to prevent his back and neck from whiplash if mm-hmm. the car stops suddenly. And you thought your church pews were uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they have so much protection that typically it's really hard to hurt a driver. And a lot of that is not that old. A lot of that technology dates back to the 90s. So it's not tremendously old. Dale Earnhardt broke his neck and died instantly when he hit a wallet 
I think, 213 miles an hour or something like that. Senior. Yeah, senior, not junior. And that was actually a few years before I started watching NASCAR. I I was not a NASCAR fan back then, but I've watched a lot of tributes to him since. And that was one of the things that the Hans device existed at that time, but they weren't required to wear it. And so a lot of the old school drivers didn't like to wear Mm -hmm. them because they couldn't move in the seat. And so Dale Earnhardt was not wearing one. And so when he hit the wall, his neck snapped from whiplash and and he died instantly. So they have really restricted drivers to being forced to use safety so they can survive these wrecks. And so auto racing is not nearly as deadly as it used to be. And it was interesting. I was I was trying to find the stats for spectators because, you know, in, in this particular instance, you know, Jan, he didn't walk away from the wreck. It didn't take him long to recover, mm-hmm. but the spectator was killed. And so I was curious to see how many spectators have been killed in racing. And it turns out that at least in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, racing is actually one of the safest sports for spectators, <laughs> which I thought was really quite interesting because just in the time that I've been watching NASCAR, I have seen at least three cars go into the cause damage to spectators. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I remember one I was watching, I think it was Carl Edwards' car got, it actually, during a pile-up wreck, his car actually went over the top of another car and got pushed up into the air and it hit the safety net right in front of the grandstands. And... um there were several people that were injured, but nobody was killed. And then there was another one I watched in which the car, I don't remember who whose car it was, but it literally came apart when it hit the catch fence. And the engine and at least one other piece of the car went through the fence and into the grandstands and injured quite the, a few people. Was that the one where the tire also went? Yeah, I think it was a tire in the engine. Yeah, I think I they remember were heavy that one. Enough that they went through the catch fence. So there have been a couple of spectator injuring accidents just in the time that I've been watching NASCAR, which is, you know, after Dale Earnhardt. I haven't been watching it I think that it's probably long. a lot more common in the racing style that they use for, like, Le Mans and the I.O. Mm-hmm. Man races. Because, because they have them right there on the corners and yeah, stuff. You exactly. know, people, they yeah. can line anywhere yeah. along, the, <laughs> along the route yeah. that they want. Right. But it was really interesting. This one article, what we can put in the show notes, because it was really, it's a short article, but it's really super fascinating. It was uh, Daytona Spectator Injuries, Is Car Racing the Most Dangerous Spectator Sport? And in that article, can you guess what sport has the highest casualty, like in deaths Non-player of casualties? Yeah. I'm going to say golf. <laughs> it's European football, soccer. Oh, really? Uh, yes. I don't know. They they must be counting hooliganism. <laughs> well, they're actually just counting deaths in the stands. So when I read the article, they were saying that a lot of the stands across Europe are unsafe. And so they've had uh, fires and collapses. Yeah. They've had stampedes where people were like, literally the press of the crowds were so great that people died. And so, yeah, it, it, of all of the sports, that has the highest spectator casualty. You know, we actually, right? in Virginia, we had a high school photographer killed recently because she got hit by a player at full speed. Well, here in the States, they said some of the worst casualties come from, like, hockey 
and baseball because, you know, like the balls and the hockey pucks get up, you know, tossed into the the stands and hit somebody just wrong. I was joking about golf, but I mean, every time you see one of the golf balls go into the crowd, I think that's (laughs) going to bounce off someone's head. Those are hard little balls. Yeah. 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 So anyway, going back to the trauma, I went off on that because I was curious, you know, it's like if, you know, racing is so dangerous to spectators, why would anybody want to go watch it? And anytime there is an accident, the racing authorities are always very quick to introduce new safety right. restrictions in order to prevent that yeah, accident. They learn from, ha- from every event. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's like, that's not going to happen again. In fact, in my racing career, not my racing career, but in my career of watching racing, I have seen an accident that was almost the exact replica of the accident that killed Dale Earnhardt Sr. And the driver of that car walked away. So because of the that, Yon device? Yeah, the Hans device, yeah. Hans device. That's so, it. yeah. It's a sport that is very safe, even though people watch it for the wrecks. I mean, that was the reason I watched it. I always thought the wrecks were super fascinating. Just the... The science is... The, the science of it all, you know. It's only fascinating... I love in, watching it on TV where you can see the... Replays. The statistics coming back from the cars oh, yeah. and, and all that. I, I love yeah. that part. It's the engineer in me. But in this instance, you know, the whole overcoming trauma thing is that, you know, Jan had to get over the fact that he killed a spectator and be able to get back in the car and keep racing. And that is one of the hardest things anybody who's in a situation like that. I think it's a lot of the racing, not just auto racing, but horse racing, especially. I know a lot of jockeys, it's such a dangerous sport for jockeys because if they get Mm -hmm. thrown off a horse and trample, they can get kicked or trampled or, you know, it's just so dangerous. But then they have to just put that from their mind every time they get up on top of one of those horses and do another Mm -hmm. race. And to be able to keep doing the sport, you have to be able to overcome trauma. I briefly wanted to talk about trauma in comparison to believers and non-believers. I've talked about it here on the podcast a number of times. It's an important element of my wife's and my testimony the story surrounding when my son died in 94. Trauma is just a part of the fallen human condition. There is nothing we can do to avoid it in our lives. Everybody is going to, at some point, have to face trauma. I mean, our parents eventually die. And, Mm -hmm. you know, our friends pass away. And it it really comes down to a question. And for me in, in this movie, it was highlighted. It comes down to the question of, can you deal with it in God or can you deal with it without God? And it's a question of believers versus non-believers. And I'll tell you, when my son died, I spent five years blaming God. You know, I was like, you took my only son from me. I am not talking to you. And it was a rough time. But, you know, I look back at it, and a lot of what I did, you know, it definitely wasn't to glorify God, but it is now. Mm -hmm. Like I said, an integral part to our testimony. And that anger serves a purpose now. And one of the Romans 8.26 was a, a formative verse for both Kayla and I as we 
learned to deal with it and came to terms with it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And that's part of what God grants us when he fills us with his Spirit, is our pain, you know, our hurt, our boo-boo of trauma is not lost on God. As a matter of fact, we have a high priest, to paraphrase Hebrews, who has been there. And, you know, he prayed in the garden, Lord, take this cup from me if it's your will. And even in anger, doesn't have to be sin. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Anger is an opening for temptation, but anger itself is not necessarily sin. And I look at this now, I look at what I went through and I look at what Jan, what's portrayed on the screen, Jan's going through And I ask myself, if you don't believe in God, how do you deal? Who do you blame it on? I mean, what's your comfort in Mm. recovery? Eventually, everybody gets past the anger part. Well, (laughs) that may be a mistake. I was going to say, not everybody does. (laughs) Eventually, most people get past the anger part. But I mean, when Neil deGrasse Tyson does he just take comfort in the fact that it's utter randomness in a meaningless universe without any goal? I certainly couldn't. So it's important that we remember as Christians that when non-Christians are going through trauma, it's so much worse than what we face. Yeah. Yeah. So in the movie, David Harbour, as Jack Slater, gives this really touching speech that's actually built up to in a number of different places in the movie. And Harbour does such a great job, but you're really going to have to see the movie to get the full effect of the speech. I don't want to read it here because I would ruin it. (laughs) And Harbour doesn't. (laughs) He does a good job with it. But I wanted to stress that as believers, we have to remember that trauma is much more traumatizing for non-believers than it is for believers because we have a hope. Believers have a hope that we can eventually grab onto and, you know, a rope that's thrown to us in our quicksand. And we need to remember that. 2 Corinthians 11, the first part of verse 11, and then 13 and 15, for me, really calls it out. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciousnesses. But jumping ahead to 13, for if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for us, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And that's really what gets Christians through trauma 
eventually. We have a comforter. You know, we may not get the comfort when and where we demand it. But I'll tell you what, it's a life-saving comfort that we get when and where we need it. Yeah. Just to go back to Jack's back in the saddle speech, the final line of that I think is worth quoting. It's like that crash is not going to define who you are, but how you respond to it will finish your lap. And that just kind of reminds me of the exhortation of Paul, you know, where he keeps saying, run the race, you know, don't Mm -hmm. let anything stop you. If we dwell on the trauma, we dwell on the loss it can become a roadblock to our service and and our faith. And so you just have to keep going. You just have to, like you said, rest in the comfort of Christ. And that's what he encourages him to do, yeah. Yeah, you just keep going. You don't let it stop you because once you hit that wall and you can't get past it, then you you no longer are progressing. And I think I've said this in previous episodes, you know, but as Christians, it's important that we continually grow in our faith. There's no such thing as reaching the pinnacle of who we are as believers in Christ. But not on this world anyway. Yeah, there's constant growth. And if you become stagnated through, you know, a trauma, which is, you know, kind of where Jan was in this, you know, the race metaphor is so strong through the New Testament. It's like, Mm -hmm. If you allow something to stop you from running your race, then you are ceasing to progress forward as a believer and you're no longer growing in faith. You're not, you've stopped. And, you know, we just have to keep running the race. We have to finish our laps, you know? Yeah. You have to get back up and get back to it. Yeah. And not let the trauma hold you back and stop you from continuing forward. And obviously, that's not an easy thing to do. I'm not saying that you just snap your fingers and it all goes away and you're okay. I've seen people like you in my life who've dealt with the death of a child and there's just no other pain like that. And I can't even put myself in that standpoint. It's hard to meet to empathize. I can sympathize, but I can't empathize because I myself have not had a child. So I don't even understand, you know, the sense of loss that there would be at losing one. But it isn't something we should allow to stagnate us in our walk with the Lord and should rely on him and, and, and he'll help us to keep going. But we can't stop. We have to finish our lap. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. I hope we'll catch you again in early November with a, hopefully a review on Creator. If you have not set up to watch that, we encourage you to do so, so you can listen to our review and we'll figure out what we're doing for December before then. So happy fall. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And And don't don't just watch. watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.